Welcome to the Existential Edge Podcast, presented by the United States Association for Small Business and Entrepreneurship. How is entrepreneurship transforming university environments? What are its most compelling lessons? How can an entrepreneurship program make maximum impact on its ecosystem and change the lives of students and others in the process? Join Patrick J. Murphy, Goodrich Endowed Chair, Professor, and Director of the Entrepreneurship Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham as he hosts leading entrepreneurs from across the country and beyond for provocative and insightful discussions of these and other questions. Welcome, everybody, to the Existential Podcast. I am Patrick J. Murphy, Goodrich Chair of Entrepreneurship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, recording from Innovation Depot, Birmingham, Alabama's flagship entrepreneurship co-working space. This is a podcast for entrepreneurship educators where we meet successful entrepreneurs from around the United States and from other countries and talk to them about their background and their beliefs. We talk to them about their entrepreneurial ventures and then we get their insights into entrepreneurship education. And today we have a Chicago-based entrepreneur, Rajiv Nathan. We're gonna get to know him really well. We're gonna talk about his entrepreneurial ventures and we're gonna get his insights into entrepreneurship education. There'll be some links and other things that we'll drop into the description, anything that Raj might wanna share with our listening audience. So before we get into it, Raj, welcome to the show. Thank you. Do I get to call you Patrick or do I just call you Professor Murphy? You can call me Patrick now. You've more than earned it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Patrick. It's a, it's an honor to be here. Um, I'm excited. I've had you as a guest on my show a couple of times in the past, so it's, it's cool to be on the other side of the microphone now. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it, and I think the audience is in for a real treat. So, Raj, if I could, I'd like to go ahead and get into the conversation where we find it really useful as educators and researchers and people who teach others to get to know the whole person. And so we're gonna get your views on entrepreneurship education ultimately here, but in order to kind of feel where all that's coming from, tell us a little bit about who you are. And you can go way back if you want, but we wanna know what makes you different, what makes you you, talk about your values, just your upbringing, anything you'd like to share with the audience to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so I think um, the best answer I can give for who am I is like, what's my belief system, I guess. Uh, and my fundamental like belief about the world and quite honestly, the reason I think I was put on this earth was this, this baseline sort of principle that uh, everyone deserves to express themselves. So I am like hardwired in this and deep rooted in this deep rooted belief of the power of expression. And everything that I've ever really done professionally or, or even really cared about, even if it was personally, has all been in the name, you know, when I think about it, it's all been in the name of expression. And so I've found over time that the, the chariot or the vehicle that I ride, you know, to, to fulfill that expression mission has always been some form of storytelling, um, or at least, at least that's how I rationalize it. In my, maybe, maybe outwardly it doesn't look like it's storytelling, but in my head, I, I look at it through the lens of story and I, and I, I kind of treat myself as such as like the, the purveyor, the narrator, the teller of the story. And that's kind of like shaped 
not kind of, it really has shaped a lot of my decision-making um, over the years, even at a subconscious level before I like knew that was the thing. Um, that was shaping my decision-making before I knew it, and now it very much is where I make a lot of decisions from. And when I think about like, why might that be the case? Like, why do I feel that's what I was hardwired for? Um, I think it has a lot to do with um, growing up as a first-generation American, living this like dual identity, um, where you have, you know, and, and I'm, I'm Indian American, which is to right, there's, there's a hyphen in there, right? So I play the role of Indian, I play the role of American, and I think that um, that life experience has shaped a lot of my perspectives, a lot of my beliefs, a lot of my actions, et cetera. Um, especially it was, it wasn't like I was, it's not like I grew up Indian American, but in a predominantly Indian neighborhood either. It was predominantly white neighborhood. So I think having to navigate this constantly having to navigate and figure out and ask this question to myself, whether I was aware of it or not, I was always having to ask myself, well, who am I? And so I think really because of that life experience I had early on, it's what's shaped a lot of this worldview that I have now. So your identity shaped your worldview. Maybe you felt a need to express um, across certain boundaries that other people didn't necessarily have to express or translate across. But what are some of the early things you did? Like, are there were there TV shows or things you learned in school early on or family influences? What are some really concrete influences that instilled that value for expression in you? So there are a couple of things like entertainment wise that definitely like, I mean, directly influence what I do now and, and where I get a lot of this mindset from. And I think, you know, you know, from knowing me, like pro wrestling has been a huge part of like my life since I was a kid. Um, and I, and I, I look at that as like, what, what bigger mode of expression is there than like these larger than life characters playing these larger than life roles in order to just like get a pop from the audience. Um, so that I know, like that to me, like I, I gravitated to that very early on, I think, cause I saw, I was like, okay, there's something here around like getting a point across. And, you know, I knew it was scripted even from the start, even when I was a kid, but I was like, but there's some draw to this. Um, I remember even like playing um, like video sports video games as a kid. I would have my own announcers going on in my head, separate from what the game was producing. Cause I was like, you know, trying to craft my own like narrative of, of this whole game. Right. Um, so those were definitely things that were going on in my mind. And, and I even would say like, that's those are the tangible things you could point to. I think there's a lot of other like more like deeper rooted, um, more intangibles, I guess, that a lot of this mindset was produced out of. And I think it's a lot of like, I think it's a lot of like the, the like the crap I've, I had to endure uh, through certain parts of my life, um, through different. Um, through different influences, I guess, um, and having to navigate like relationships. So growing up in a predominantly white community, you're actually constantly looked at as like the other, even when you're like fully brought into the fold. And I don't mean to say everyone, but you know, enough people that I knew who were, you know, my friends, people I was close with, 
it wasn't necessarily the same um, we weren't necessarily on the same level, I guess, because there was a skin color and like a religion difference. And again, it's not stuff, I, it's not stuff that I knew at the time, but I can look at it today and say that was direct, that was directly influential to this belief system, um, this idea of wanting of people being able to express themselves. Because I have experienced moments in my life where I felt like I couldn't be me. I had to fulfill a certain role where I had to play a certain part in order to fit whatever the expectation was. We've talked on this show quite a bit with um, entrepreneurs who, who have some sort of aspect of who they are that makes them different from others. And without giving that up, without selling out, but keeping and preserving the integrity of that difference, they have nonetheless developed life strategies for um, for surviving and thriving despite the fact that they're different. And it, it sounds to me like your your celebration of the the act of expressing oneself and influencing others might be related to uh, the the identity issues that you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know there's sometimes when I, I do like keynote talks sometimes um, I'll bring up an example that you know, again, wasn't something I knew in the time, but in retrospect, um, I look back and I say that was that was a pivotal moment. Um, I think there's something at a deep level in me that says, well, I don't want people to have to feel that way. Um, and the example that I'll give is, um, for me, the scariest day of my life was actually September 12th, 2001. So the day after 9-11, because we all like went back to school that day after having seen, you know, 12 hours of news coverage the day before. And, you know, I got to school that day and it was almost like everyone I knew had turned on me or like my close friends had turned on me because now there was this clear, you know, we didn't know much at that point about what happened, but we knew enough to know, hey, people who look a certain way did this thing to Americans. And so I became lumped as part of that by you know, enough people. So when I got to school that day, um, you know, the way it was set up was like before the, before the bell rings in the morning, all the students just like line up outside of the school. And so, you know, generally whenever your bus arrives, you just go like find wherever your friends are standing and you go stand in the line near them. And so that's what I did. And one of my close friends at the time, like, you know, saw me approaching and he said, um, he said, I swear to God, if you wore a rag on your head or if you were Islamic, I'd drop your ass right here, right now. Oh, man. And I was, what, 12 years old at the time? <laughs> 13 years old, maybe? Um, and I remember in that moment, it, it was almost like out of a movie because like this like swell of like people form this like semicircle around to be like, what's going to happen here? Mm. And I had to react in that moment. Um, and I, didn't, I didn't have a ton of time to think about it because I know people are watching. I know, you know, this, he's just said this to me. And I'm at the same time also like, but this is also my friend, right? <laughs> 
and I'm trying to not like kill a friendship at the same time, regardless of what was just said to me. Cause so all I could muster in that moment was to like shake his hand and say like, yeah, right on. Like totally. Like I would do the same thing. You know, it's not what I agreed with. It's like all I could muster in that moment. Mm. And so, you know, to your question, which was like, do you think the expression stuff now is related to like some of the identity challenges of before a lot of me, you know, when I look at the work that I do now, um, the probably the underlying like root of a lot of it is a voice in me saying, well, I never want anyone to feel the way I had to feel that on that day. That is a vivid example. And, um, that's some friend. So are you still friends with him? <laughs> are you still friends with him today? <laughs> Was friends through high school and, you know, a couple of years into college. And then we kind of just like drifted from there, but you know, it, it's almost like the story should go. I, never talked to him again after that day, but it didn't. It was like, you know, it was, I think the process, and especially at that age when all you're trying to do is just be accepted and fit in and 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 everyone's going through puberty, so everyone's just like mean to each other. You, you know, you just like, you write it off as whatever and you keep going, but, but I think um, that and moments like that are what had me like internalize certain, um, certain like identity beliefs over a course of several years that it took a decent amount of time to unravel from and be able to like be put myself out there in a certain way and be confident and comfortable in it and know like what I don't want to have to conform back to. One of the things that we as entrepreneurship educators spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to teach most effectively is resilience and it's an important part of the entrepreneurial mindset to be strong in the face of uncertainty or even adverse circumstances. And in your in your story here, I um I clearly right, you had to have a certain kind of strength and strong sense of who you are and ability to deal with those things around you. Just not as an entrepreneur, um, but as a person. We're gonna get into your entrepreneurial ventures here in a minute. And I gotta tell everybody, Raj's doing some incredible things as an entrepreneur. He has a huge audience and he, he has a number of really cool projects. But before we get into that, Raj, it, what is it about you, your character, or your personality that enabled you not to shrink away from the hostile social forces around you? What, where, where did you find strength to grow in the midst of that sort of, those sorts of circumstances? I think, you know, because there was a there was a several year period during that like growing up phase where I felt like I had to hide a portion of myself at all times, whether it was culturally or whether it was like just through like interests, right? Like I started rapping in high school and that was not received well by most of my friends because they said, oh, literally what they said was, you're not black, you can't rap. Um, which, you know, that's its whole other like mixed bag of stuff we could, we could talk about. But you know, I, 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 so, so what did I have to do? I, I would like write these things in my room and like hide the notebook. So if I were any friends over, no one would find it, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, there was always this like hint of like, I'm doing it, but not really, which even as I got a little bit older, like, like through college, it took a few years to like feel comfortable and confident saying, I rap, I'm a rapper, you know, versus like, yeah, no, there's like this thing I kind of do sometimes. Don't ask me about it. Right. 
Um, and I think, you know, again, it's not like I, I didn't necessarily like have like the, the tolerance or like the switch to flip at the time. I think what started to change where I, you know, you talk about like that word, like the resilience and everything. Uh, and I'll tell you like today, what I know to be true and what I'll tell others is you really have to be like, I, th I think if you want to be successful in the sense of like happy with yourself, uh, you know, material gain can be part of that as well, but, but, but truly being happy with who you are, you have to be willing to be unrelentlessly yourself. And that means, you know, not having to necessarily like code switch regarding, depending on the room you're in. And, and, I, and I don't mean like, you know, you know, walk, walk into like a formal event wearing like uh, a tank top and, and like shorts. That's not what I mean, but but so many people that I see feel like they can't actually talk about the things they're interested in because they don't know if someone else is going to be interested in that too. And I'm like, well, how are you going to know unless you talk about it? Right? You're just going to hope that somehow you find yourselves online otherwise. Like, oh, you like this thing too? You like this thing too? Uh, yeah, let's let's be friends over that, right? So you know, when I am. When I present myself in whatever room I'm in, and I don't necessarily mean as the presenter, but when I'm talking with people, when I'm meeting people, I don't really feel like I need to like hold back on what I'm interested in or, or what I like or what I'm involved in. And that's not to say when they meet me, I say, hi, I'm Raj. Here's everything that I do, right? <laughs> it's just more so that uh, it's not hard for me now to like oh that actually reminds me of this thing that i really like that you know talks about that as well right i don't have that like fear of are they gonna think it's weird or not i think i think everyone should strive to be weird in fact because <laughs> that's what makes the world interesting yeah. and to be unrelentlessly yourself um i think the process for me probably started a little less than a decade ago and it, and it really started to happen when I changed who my immediate like surroundings were or who, or who my immediate circle was. And I, I, I didn't realize, I, I, I truly did not realize until I started to make these changes that there actually is like a level of um, relationship you can have with people or friendship you can have with people that isn't predicated on just who can make fun of each other the best or who has like the funniest like rip on someone. Um, like, you know, a couple of my friends from DePaul where you, you know, that's how we know each other because he used to teach there. Um, a couple of my friends from DePaul who I wasn't like super close with, but we were friends. They ended up becoming my roommates a couple of years after college. And I remember like, telling them something that I was about to do that was interesting. And their response was like only support. And, and I remember thinking, I was like, wait a second. Like I was, I was bracing for like a, Oh, that sounds dumb or whatever. And it wasn't that. And it was, a, it was just a fully, it was like, a, Oh, can, how can we be there? You know, like, wait, like how can we support you? Mm -hmm. And that was a totally different level of like, again, a friendship that I, I just genuinely did not know existed uh, until that point. Um, so that's what 
started to change things. And then as I started to do entrepreneurial things, I just start, started to surround myself with other people doing entrepreneurial things. So, you know, when you have the uh, off the beaten path idea, there's people who want to talk through it with you. Um, when you have the, the day that's terrible, you have other people who have also experienced or are experiencing terrible days and, and vice versa, the great stuff as well. So um, I think, uh, speaking from experience, I think a lot of people never get out of that like rut of, well, the people that I have surrounded myself with are the people I must forever surround myself with. Hmm. And I just don't think that's true at all. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think it's great to have lifelong friends and I admire the people who do. And I have many, I, I do have some friends who I've had for life who have been amazing. Um, I don't want to discount that, but I also think certain people come into your life at certain times for certain reasons. And sometimes those reasons have a certain expiration date on them. And it's okay if that happens and you make room for someone or something new. These are great insights, Raj. I, um, I really appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and wrap up this section of the show and take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to learn all about Raj's entrepreneurial ventures and how he, maybe we'll get him to talk about rap a little bit. Um, we'll get him to talk about the different projects that he's worked on and how he's used his past experiences to become a successful entrepreneur in the city of Chicago with a national and an international audience when we come back on the Existential Edge podcast. All right, welcome back everybody to the second segment of our show. We are here with Rajiv Nathan, startup hype man, rapper, serial entrepreneur. He's based in the city of Chicago. We just had a really great in-depth conversation with him about his background and his personal values and everything. And now we're gonna talk about his entrepreneurial ventures and get some insights into what he's doing as an entrepreneur. So Raj, the, thanks again for sharing everything about your background. It was a great conversation, but now we want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your entrepreneurial endeavors. So maybe um, it, it's up to you. Just give us a good insight into who you are as an entrepreneur and maybe start with your early ventures or start with what you're doing right now, but let's go ahead and open it up and I'll ask you some questions as we go along, but tell us who you are as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and I think it, it's a, uh it's an extension of, you know, who I explained I am before, but you know, my work as an entrepreneur is centered around giving people and the brands that they build a voice uh, and figuring out the voice that's going to connect with their audience. So as startup hype man, as the creator and the chief pitch artist, as I like to say, of startup hype man, uh, what I focus on is working with growing companies to help them, you know, to put it simply not suck at how they pitch themselves figuring out the way that's going to help them stand out to their audience and stand apart from their competition so that they can make their dent in the universe as they should. And so we'll work out with companies on that for the purpose of capital raise, for the purpose of um, selling and acquiring customers, uh, and then also as well for the purpose of, you know, perhaps like delivering a like keynote on stage at a conference. Um, and then one of the cool things too that we've now started to roll out 
um, which is a further extension of my personality, is what I call hype songs. So a different way to get your voice out there, which is taking your value prop, taking whatever it is you want to promote and turning it into a rap song and video um, to put out there for you know the masses and whatever medium is going to work for you. Um, and, and this whole venture kind of started sort of by accident, sort of not really. Um, I think it depends on your, your definition of the term, like accident. But, you know, prior to this, I was working on another venture with a fellow um, DePaul alumni um, who we, we created a company called Idea Lemon, which was really focused on personal branding and helping people develop, like, what's their personal pitch for when they're networking or for when they're interviewing for a job, et cetera. And, you know, we did that for a few years. Um, we, I'll tell you this, we got kind of popular, but popularity doesn't pay bills. <laughs> so we had, um, I mean, I think we had some really good strategies and stuff. We could just never figure out the right revenue model with that. And so um, we had to shut that down after a couple of years doing it full time. Um, very, very like serendipitously, um, you know, through doing that venture, we had just become very well networked in the Chicago entrepreneurial scene. And the CEO and founder of an organization called Bunker Labs, which um, is a incubator for a nonprofit incubator for military veterans and active service members and their spouses who are starting or growing businesses of any kind. Um, he had reached out to me to say, hey, you know, we had a cohort come through. They did terrible on their pitch day. Um, can you work with our next cohort and help them out with their pitches? Because I know you're good at pitch stuff. And I said, sure, I'll do that. I can do that. I know how to do that. And I hung up the phone and I immediately Google searched, what is a startup pitch deck? <laughs> and then I, uh, you know, I, I, I started to like understand it from there. And, and really, I'd say like that first year was just like a self-taught uh, MBA almost, um, just diving deep into the concepts. And I was able to, you know, again, like, Having like a already like base desire and experience in and perhaps knack for storytelling, uh, all I needed to see was like what's like the format that it's supposed to be in, and then I said, okay, now I see how it comes together, and then okay, here's how we're going to make this good. And so the companies in that cohort who worked with me had a lot of really good success from selling a lot of their product to raising money um, to winning events, pitch events. And that was how Startup Hype Man was born then. Was out of, that was almost like a test run, right? I had a sandbox of 15, 20 companies to play with. I got to the end of that and I said, I've never had so much fun doing a job in my life. This is the next thing. And so then I officially launched Startup Hype Man after that. It's amazing how you've been able to combine art, music, rap with business, raising money and entrepreneurial activities and all of that. And I, you know, the people who are listening who um, look you up after they hear this podcast, I know they're going to find that rap video where you're rapping about like, I don't know if it's about like product market fit or the marketing mix or something like that. But I, I got to tell everybody, this guy who I'm interviewing right now has actually rapped like a proper rap song about like an entrepreneurial topic. He's also, uh, I'm going to hopefully not embarrass you too much here, but when he was my entrepreneurship student, I had them do a bunch of outreach activities and he went out and assembled his team and rapped to an audience in order to make money. And then some years later, I had to go, I had to travel for work 
or something like that. I wasn't there. And he came in with um, some of his partners and they taught one of my, they taught my class for a week and he wrapped a lecture to my <laughs> students. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> I think standing on his head. He So he wrapped <laughs> to students doing yoga, standing on his head. I mean, it's, and it sounds like, you know, like it's uh, hokey or salesman -y or gimmicky or something, but it's not, it's really authentic stuff. He's, remain true to his art and his self-expression like he's talked about, but he's turned it into a successful business. And you've been doing this for a long time now. Like when you're my, we're talking about like a decade ago and you've been doing this since then. So like how many, like how many companies would you just ballpark it? Like how many years have you been doing this, helping companies in this way? And how many entrepreneurs have you helped pitch and win competitions and raise money yeah. and all of that? Yeah, so it's Startup Hype Man now. This is now the fifth year of Startup Hype Man. Um, we've probably, I know I have taught at, at least mm, probably 1,500 to 2,000 companies. My you know, formulas, my strategies, et cetera, around pitching and storytelling. Directly worked with, I don't know, maybe like maybe 75 companies or so over the years. Um, and we've had maybe two dozen or more pitch competition winners or top three. Um, we've helped, you know, literally, I, you know, one of my clients right now, I'm helping with sales, uh, helping them get their sales message right. One of their account executives just went from, in his third month in the role, and uh, his second month in the role, he did 50% of his quota and was on a, on a PIP, a performance improvement plan. And in month three now, we turned it around, he did 149% of his quota, I believe. Um, so just a lot of like, you know, good stuff, good stories like that we've had. Um, and what I like as well is I've worked with a lot of different, uh, a lot of diversity of founder as well. Um, I, I think it's like BS whenever someone says like, oh, like it's hard to find diverse founders. It's hard to find if you're not looking, <laughs> uh, you gotta start looking to be able to find something. Um, so I'm just also really proud of the work we've been able to do, just being able to help, I think, overall build up the entrepreneurial ecosystem, whether it is through helping companies raise money or helping them win competitions or get exposure or sell their product, um, and also put more different types of faces in the room as well in the process. Right. I mean, you're living a certain type of dream that we that we really teach. And I think what really attracts students to entrepreneurship programs and we're going to talk about entrepreneurship education in the next segment. But what you're doing is so personal and it, it, it flows from the truth of your own experiences, but you've been able to turn it into a business. And, and so it can't feel like work to you, right? I mean, I guess sometimes aspects of it does, but <laughs> does this work energize you or does it drain you? I mean, the fact that it's so personal, is that what makes you so motivated or is it some sort of higher calling? I mean, I guess talk about how the personal and the professional blend together. I don't know if they balance or harmonize or what, but you're doing very personal stuff and this is what we try to teach. So how did you crack that nut? It's an interesting question because it is very personal and I do get energized by it, but I also very much treat it like work because I have to, right, to take it seriously. If it's just play, I'm gonna I'm gonna dip out and, and go play my PS4 instead. <laughs> um, so I I have to treat it like work. 
to be able to like take it seriously. And I somehow, or maybe I shouldn't say somehow, but I have managed, you know, knock on wood and, and you know, by the grace of God and everything, I have managed to really build out a career here where the things I am interested in, I work on, like, like they become part of my job. And if I'm interested in something, I tend to find a way to like monetize it or to make it part of my profession in some, in some respect. Right. Um, and so I think a lot of that is a product of that kind of what we said earlier, but like this, like being able to like reconcile your identities and just be like, well, it's all me. It's not just that it's like, there's yoga me and there's rap me and there's startup me. It's all me. Mm. And it can all, and it can all be part of your quote unquote brand your your personal brand anyway. And the trade off of it, I will say, and it's something that I've been navigating is, well, how do you scale a company that is so personality driven? Because then people want you because they like your personality and they want your perspective specifically, not necessarily an employee of the company. So, and I also like, think it, it makes it difficult to, at least from an operational perspective, to think beyond yourself. So right. those are the things that I am navigating right now. It's like, how do you scale yourself? Yes, yeah, how do you create a scalable personality? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Um, so those are the things that I'm navigating now, but I am starting to see that it's possible. Um, and I think it just starts out small, right? So right. by service offering, and, I, and, and one, I'll tell you one of the things is switching the pronoun from my to our, or we, or figuring from I to we. So we at Startup Hype Man provide this. Uh, our service is, right, that kind of thing. Because um, I think just the mental, like like my hypothesis is just if I tell myself it's a we and an hour situation, I'm more likely to create the we and the hour, as opposed to just the me and the I. That um that may be another thing that we should dive in here, dive into here because one of the challenges for us when we educate future entrepreneurs is. It is very personality driven and especially in the early stages, it's so personal that you feel possessive of your project and whatnot, but everybody knows, I mean, in this field at least, and people who do this for a living, that if you maintain that orientation, you're gonna stifle the growth of your business. So at some point it does need to turn from I into we, and you do need to build out a, a team, right? Mm -hmm. So. It, we, we've learned about you and the business and what you're doing, but talk a little bit about your philosophy toward bringing on team members and people who have joined your organization. Talk a little about a little bit about how all of that has evolved. Yeah, I think you know part of it is just getting real with yourself and being like, there's no possible way I'm that unique that I'm the only company that somehow cannot scale beyond one person. <laughs> Right, uh, that that's like the conversation I think I had to have with myself. Um, that you know, my situation is so unique that no, it actually can't grow to other people. I do also think it's important for aspiring entrepreneurs to also have that conversation with themselves as they're building. Is 
is it something that I care to grow beyond myself? Because it's also okay if you do want to just be the solopreneur for you know forever, and you figure out how to make that work. I think my path is some type of a small team, uh, and what we've done, what we've been able to do so far, again, is we started. I started small last year, and for for one of our um, one of our service offerings, there are like three steps to it. It is your elevator pitch, your pitch deck, and your what we, what we call the brand manifesto. So like think about your company's like charter document that states like, this is the flag we're putting in the ground, this is our vision, et cetera. Which I think is very important. But what I realized is I actually don't enjoy writing that. And when I was selling that in, that was the part that I was putting off as long as possible. And so I said, all right, let me start there. The thing I really don't want to do. Let me see if I can, let me see if it's possible for someone else to do that. And so I reached out to someone else I knew, who I know who, who um, their professional trade is a storyteller, but just in a different capacity in, in B2B. And I said, you know, I, I think you're the, the, you're the first person I would trust if I was not physically able to do this job myself. And she was like, hey, actually, I don't have the bandwidth. <laughs> But she said, but I have someone who contracts for me who I think is great. And I think you should give her a shot. And I was like, I had some hesitations because she had no startup experience. But published author, um, great storyteller in her own right. And, I, and then what did it become? Well, let's do a trial. Let's do a trial here. Let's do a three-month trial of projects. And let's see how those go. And for that first three months, I got to look at it before it goes to the client. And I did it. And, you know, there was like one hiccup that we figured out that was more of like a procedural thing than a her talent thing to where then I got it. We got it to the point of saying, OK, you know what? I don't need to look at this now. It can go straight. Like you can send it to the client. It can go straight to them. And I trust your work enough. And, you know, the overall workflow that the project's going to get done in time, et cetera. And so that was, you know, step one. I should caveat, I guess. Actually, step one was hiring a personal assistant a couple of years ago who has to all the administrative stuff or most of it is just like off my plate now, like invoicing, editing podcasts, um, creating like the promotional content for a podcast, um, random other stuff. Right. Um, and now she's even client facing to an extent. Um, right. So small things you don't like doing offload that first to where now, you know, the team is it's contractors. Right. But I still consider them the team. And even though, you know, my assistant, her title is media coordinator, we do a performance review every year, twice a year, right? And I give her her like goals and I say, hey, like, here's what it's going to take to like get a raise because I think you're on the right path. So, and, you know, they may be a contractor and they're working, you know, whatever it is, 40 hours a month instead of 40 hours a week. I still consider it part of my team, which is important and which is now allowing me to think, okay, well, the core pitch work. When I get an influx of demand, it gets hard to service all of that at once. Can I now start to farm that out to someone I trust? So you have to be, what I have learned so far is you have to be willing to let go of some, of 100% control and just get good at delegating. And I used to be terrible at it, but now what's funny is if you ask that contractor and the other friend who was like, I'm not free, but she still kind of like oversees like that person for me, 
she will give me this feedback. She was like, I got to like take notes from you on like process on documenting processes because this is great. And I don't do any of this. <laughs> and that's all stuff that I would say about my own self, you know, two, three years ago, I was terrible at documenting processes, but the need arises and you figure it out. That's right. So many entrepreneurs who have um, gone through this journey have not successfully taught themselves how to delegate and how to build trust. Uh, do you have a, do you have a quick answer to that question? How, how do you make yourself comfortable enough to delegate aspects of the business that you love? How do you build trust with another person who you don't really know all that well yet? How, how do you do that? Yeah, I think, well, I think it goes back to that idea of starting small, right? Um, first off, try a trial phase, try before you buy, right? Can you get a, someone on a three month stint? They're not a full-time employee. There's a, they're on a, they're on a 1099 contract. Um, Wait, 1099, yeah, 1099 contract. I'm not sure I have a tax code right there. It's good uh, that you have other people doing this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, yeah, it's good. I got a, I got a separate CFO who handles that stuff. Uh, so, can you get someone on a three month contract doing work that, if screwed up, you'd have a safety valve in place before it had any real impact on the business, and or if screwed up it would be fairly inconsequential to the survival of the business. Mm. And if you can get past that, then you just, you go incremental from there. That's great. That's a great logical framework for making sense out of what otherwise would be a very complicated process, just fraught with all sorts of human error. That's brilliant, Raj. I, um, everybody listening, so all the links that he wants to share to his company and so forth, uh, we're gonna drop those in the uh, program notes so you can check him out. Um, he, Raj is very, very good at what he does. And um, Raj, thank you for sharing some insights into your entrepreneurial uh, philosophy and approach and your experiences. So we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we're gonna get some hard hitting insights into what Raj believes should be taught in entrepreneurship programs and courses and what he thinks should not be taught in those courses as well. We're gonna try to get him to open up and really weigh in on these topics. When we come back, on the Existential Edge podcast in partnership with the U.S. Association for Small Business and Entrepreneurship. All right, welcome back everybody to the Existential Edge podcast. In partnership with USASB, we have here Rajiv Nathan, the founder of Startup Hype Man and a range of other ventures. We've learned about him and about his ventures, and now we're going to talk about entrepreneurship education with him. So, Raj, if you could tell us a little bit about um, how entrepreneurship education helped you, how it didn't help you. Um, you know, it's been some time since you were a student. You've been out in the field now for a while, but you're in a position where you're hiring people now. And for the listeners of this podcast, we care about educating the entrepreneurs of tomorrow, but also educating the future employees of the entrepreneurs of today. So we just wanna jump right in and get your views on what's really important to teach and what can be taught and maybe what can't be taught. So I think that, you know, when I think back to my educational experience, probably the biggest things that helped were like practical, um, or sorry, just having practice at like the subject matter at hand. So whether, you know, and, and 
you know, my major in college was, was marketing actually. And entrepreneurship was one of our graduation requirements, which that's funny because I remember at the time thinking like, yeah, I'm, I have to do this class, but I'm never going to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> right. And we didn't, uh, for, for clarity, we, uh, we did not have an entrepreneurship major at the time at the yeah. university. Uh, they do now. I'm not there anymore. They do now, but at the time they didn't. Yeah. And it's funny that that's what, that was my thought for, I was like, yeah, I'll never be an entrepreneur. <laughs> even though I was doing entrepreneurial things without realizing it, even at that time. Um, but I think the ability to like connect with real world examples really helped. Like in my marketing projects, in, in your entrepreneurship class, we got assigned like actual clients, like real companies. And we were, you know, quasi consultants for them. And I think whether we, you know, I would say in retrospect, it's questionable if we were of any value to them or not. Like just knowing, like thinking back to like the suggestions we gave, because what do we really know? But I think more than anything, the value on the student side is it forces you to think realistically about something other than yourself that has like real implications to it. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a, like a math equation that you don't necessarily know if you'll ever use in life again. Um, that's not, that's not a knock on math or anything like that. Um, but having, you know, having a weekly meeting with a real company where they're like, this is our business challenge. You're going to help us with this actually puts you in a mode of starting, of starting to think critically early on. You so know, I think those, that's, it's really important to have. Those outreach projects are, you're right. They're very important and they're, they're definitely gaining in popularity and the, the urban institutions tend to have a little bit of an easier go at it because they have the density of entrepreneurs around them are typically mm -hmm. is typically greater and we can engage them but but for all universities it's a challenge because kind of like you said i mean these are just students and so the professor's job is to really create an environment where the students actually can add value that will be helpful to the entrepreneurial venture but at the same time as an academic as a scholar you can't sell out your purpose, which would be one way to do that would be this to, to demand of the students that this is going to be marketable professional grade work. You can't do that because they're just learners. And so you need to create a space where they can, the dollars and the deadlines need to be real. But if the students screw it up, it's not like people are going to lose a job or something right. like that. So you got to be able to, you know, skin your elbow and make some mistakes. And at the same time, the entrepreneurs need, so it's a delicate balance between all of those elements. And gosh, in my experience, the entrepreneurs just line up. They love these projects. So you're saying that the outreach is really important. And um, yeah, absolutely. We, we totally, I think probably everyone listening to you is going to agree with that. I, I want to ask another question though, like what are the types of things that you believe students graduating from university now, um, need to make sure that they have so they don't have to learn it on the job and it takes a year for them to get up to speed. What are some things that good world-class entrepreneurship programs should make a concerted effort to try to teach the young learners of today? I think every entrepreneur, it's a great question. I think every entrepreneurship program should teach sales because that's going to be your company's success or failure. Ultimately, can you actually sell your product? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I mean, even I graduated, I graduated under the belief that I'm a marketer and that sales is disgusting. And then I had to like, you know, learn it on the job four years later. Um, 
and you know, if, if it was taught to, if, if I had even taken on the mindset earlier on while I was still an academic learner, that it's important and that it's necessary and, that, and to understand what it really is, it would have changed so much. So I think this, I think you have got to teach selling and sales skills and how like the art of sales, whatever you want to call it. Every entrepreneur should know that because the second they decide they're going to start a company, they are the company's first salesperson. Whether you are having to sell your idea to an investor, sell your idea into a wholesaler to get them to carry your product if it's a physical good, right? Sell it to an end customer if you're building software, whatever it might be. The sale, you know, one of my mentors always says, sales is oxygen, right? <laughs> you, you should, so we should be teaching students how to breathe, essentially, is, is what I'm getting at here. Mm. Um, and then I, another thing that I think is important as well is... So I'll tell you this, one thing that bugs me is there are a lot of entrepreneurs who you will talk to now who will say, there's no point in teaching entrepreneurship in school. You can't teach entrepreneurship. It has to be lived only, which to that, are, I say yet again. There are people out there who say that? Oh, plenty. <laughs> plenty, right? Right? No, I, I, I talk to them every week. I, yeah. I totally understand. I love yes. those conversations, by the way. But you No, know, um, right? And they say, yeah, no, you have this is a job. You can only learn on the job. And it's like, so you telling me a surgeon can't, like, should go through eight years of, of, of school in order to be able to perform surgery, but you selling a more or less like fringe software product can only be learned on the job, right? That's, that's kind of a misnomer there. So um, that said, I don't think what's really valuable is to teach someone like how to run a company. I don't know if there's a ton of value in that, it could be wrong. I think what's more valuable is in saying, is in being able to show like, expose students to like trends and patterns so that if they become entrepreneurs themselves, they can say, oh, you know what? Actually, I learned about this pattern. This is familiar to me. I can talk through that. You know, one of the things that a friend of mine who actually taught entrepreneurship at DePaul um, for a couple of years, um, uh, Levi Bayer, I don't know if you know him, uh, you might have been gone by the time that he was teaching. No, that. I actually hired him. Oh, great. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was before I left. Okay. One of the exercises he had his class do that I really liked was they they had to listen to an episode of the How I Built This podcast. And then their essay was, I think it was like, listen to four episodes. What are the, what are the common themes you notice mm -hmm. across the success or failure of a company? And what like one or two traits do you feel each of these entrepreneurs all shared? So it was something to that extent. And I think that's a really good exercise. Think yeah. critically about these four companies and their stories. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really great insight. I, I, I think what you said, it, it may sound provocative to some of the more traditional business education uh, folks to not need to teach students how to run a company. I, I think entrepreneurship education is a little bit different. And I think what you're saying there makes a lot of sense because the way a company runs when those people you're teaching actually are running one, you know, might be 10 years from now, the logic of the operations could be completely different because of different technologies, different 
arrangements and so forth with suppliers and partners and alliances, the logic of how all that works can be completely different. So if you teach them how to run or how to operate it in a very practical way, you're almost teaching them how things won't be in the future. But if by contrast, you teach them the logic of how to, how to package and assemble resources in relation to a trend and how to do it in an innovative way that makes sense in the context of your idea, then you're teaching them how to fish, if you know what I mean. They're, they're gonna be in a different place 10 years from now, but they're still gonna get the right kind of lessons. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, it is. It's, you know, I, I think the, the best way to look at it is like, let's say someone is an engineering student. What did they get a degree in really? They got a, they got a degree in how to solve problems. And I think you know, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is no, not necessarily much different. What you're, we're trying to prepare students to, for a life of is figuring out like how to be a better problem solver ultimately. Because you also have to keep in mind, not everyone who enrolls in an entrepreneurship program actually wants to run a company, right? Nor are they necessarily like made to be CEO or founder or anything like that, which is totally okay. Sure. So if we can just turn people into better problem solvers, also going to become better decision makers and, and be able to navigate their paths better. So what do you think about the notion that, because I get a lot of questions, because we we just launched our entrepreneurship major. We, we're going to have probably 80 to 90 declared majors in the fall here in a few months. The program is growing really fast. But one of the most common questions we get is, what are you teaching them how to do? Go run companies? And I'm like, well, yes, but not right away. There's probably, to be honest, only about 5% of our current students at any given time are really serious about growing a business. They formed an LLC and they're making money and they're growing it only about 5%. The vast majority of others, we're preparing them to go work for other entrepreneurs, which is a pretty darn good stepping stone to becoming an entrepreneur yourself, going and working for an entrepreneur for a while, for three or four years after you graduate and then eventually branching off on your own. So we, I think a lot of us in my world try to pitch our programs toward preparing students to go work for other entrepreneurs. And then if you have the ones who are in your program launching a company, and if that really takes off, I mean, I'll be the first one to tell them, you know, quit, drop out of school and go do that. And then if it takes off, congratulations. If it doesn't, you know, you can come back to the mothership at any time. That's sort of the way I think a lot of people frame entrepreneurship programs now. What do you think of that? I think it's a good approach. I think it's a good approach. I think it, so you, you know, you said the people say, what do you teach them how to run companies? I think it's less teach them how to run companies and it's more teach them how companies are run. And I think there's actually, I think that's a very, that, that is a distinction because if someone understands how a company is run, I'll tell you, even if they don't even work for an entrepreneur, if they go work at whatever company, nothing made me appreciate the value of a dollar more than the day the dollar, like that dollar was on me, right? You know, so I, I think you create better employees as well when, when, when students are taught how companies are run. So they're learning how companies are run, not how to run companies. They're learning how to sell, which a lot of them may be really averse to that idea of learning how to sell. What, why were you, I didn't ask you this, but I wanted to. So what was so abhorrent or disgusting about selling when you were a student way back when? I so, I always had thought of myself at that point as a marketer. 
And I don't know. I, I think my idea of sales was I'm going to trick someone into buying my product, which it's, realistically it's more so what marketing is than anything else. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was what that was. What I think I carried the association of like used car salesmen, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't. I just didn't understand like what it was really all about. And I think. I think it's actually way better now than it was a decade ago, the overall like impression of sales. That said, I think sales still in like global surveys is like the second least trusted profession uh, along with like PR or something like that. Like, right. it's like the general public when it's like, hey, like who would you trust in this list? Like salesperson is actually like lowest on the list. That's right. Because I think they've been exposed to, you know, being in front of a, a bad seller a lot of times. That's uh, okay. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I, I, I've heard that a lot. And, um, you know, I think that field of sales is kind of changing anyway, just in terms of how it, how it, how it, how it works and what they're teaching. And we have a really strong sales program at, at UAB and um, that, that makes total sense. So last question for you, and then we're going to wrap it up here. So I'm, I'm a Gen X member of Gen X. You're a member of Gen Y. I, millennial. I, yeah. Millennial. Is yeah. Gen Y the same as millennials? I think so. I think they are. Yes. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're, you're a Gen Y millennial. Yeah. Uh, but Gen Z is coming into university right now. So I, I know in the ecosystem, you meet a lot of younger folks and through your work and everything else. We're teaching Gen Z right now, and they're a little bit different than Gen Y. What can you say in terms of how this current generation, which I believe are the first truly native users of technology, meaning they grew up using technology that didn't suck, like stuff that was actually fast, reliable, and it worked and just the way they handle information, what they expect for their careers. What can you say about teaching them effectively to be uh, future entrepreneurs? Wow. Okay. So this is an outsider observation because I do not interact with Gen Z every day. What I think at a kind of a, so, so that sort of from that with that outsider, lens, I think at an overall level, what I have observed is that Gen Z needs to improve on how to deal with things they don't like, Mm -hmm. how to process information that does not align with with your belief system or, or, or your opinions how to have a baseline understanding that not everyone's going to have the same opinion and that can actually be okay. Um, you know, the way, and this is a little bit of a tangent here and it'll come back to more of your question. One of the things I notice that, that really has come up over the last probably four or five years, the rise of like cancel culture across you know the landscape right and i'm not here to make excuses for someone who said something terrible or did something terrible at the same time and i'll tell you i do a decent amount of like dei work so i'm not like averse to like people making insensitive remarks or anything like that um i think that i think what i've observed is this rush to cancel is a result of not knowing how to actually deal with an issue Therefore, the default is, well, just get it out of my face altogether. 
swipe swipe left on it because I don't want to see it. So let's cancel altogether. So I think where that that sort of like cultural or of that age group, that cultural mindset, because I don't think that's healthy or productive, right? I think what I think what there's a desire for is like everyone should 100% align with what I think, and if they don't, it means they're a bad person and that they need to leave the face of this planet. I don't think you're going to build good companies thinking like that. I don't think you're going to ever figure out how to work at a company because there's going to be a whole range of people who have opinions at that company. Um, I think where our entrepreneurship education can come in and help influence that is in this exposure to varying opinions on topics saying, hey, here's an example of this company. Here's, it could be something that was related to their downfall or not, but what are five different ways that this could be approached? Not just what's your one way of wanting to approach it, but hey, what's your one way? Now, put that aside. And if you could never do that one way, what are four other ways you'd have to accomplish the goal? Right, right. Because now you start getting, you start people thinking in like a, oh, my opinion is not the only opinion that exists. Right. I mean, it's going to be really hard to be an entrepreneur if you're unable to, you know, deal with people who have a different point of view than you do yeah. or don't see eye to eye with you. Absolutely. No, it's a great insight. And, you know, the kind of open mindedness or tolerance, whatever it is that we're talking about here, the, the ability to take a perspective of someone who's completely different from you is something that's teachable. And we we do a lot of that. That's a really great insight. Raj, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I want to start to wrap it up here. Before I do, just really quickly, is there anything that we didn't touch upon that you'd like to share with the audience about uh, yourself or your venture or entrepreneurship education? I think I would be remiss if I didn't say I think it's also important to talk to students early on about the importance of inclusion um, in the in the ecosystem and let people on like make people understand like systemic inequities that have existed. Um, I think at the college level, like to be aware of that early on is really helpful. So you don't, you know, become that founder 10 years later who continues to perpetuate, um, you know, harm realistically and then doesn't realize it and it's too late to do anything about it. So I think the more we can educate students on inclusion, on systems of inequity and how that impacts entrepreneurship and overall like economic uh, landscapes would be really helpful. Um, and then as it pertains to my stuff, uh, please, you know, anyone can connect with me. Company is Startup Hype Man, startuphypeman.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I use Twitter maybe once a month at this point, so don't get me on Twitter. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. And if you want to listen to my podcast, where Patrick Murphy has been a guest a couple times in the past, just search Startup Hype Man. It's called Startup Hype Man, the podcast. If you search Startup Hype Man in your podcast app, it'll show up. Every week we have conversations with company leaders talking through different growth strategies that they've been employing at their company. That's awesome. Yeah, everybody, Raj does amazing work and I encourage you to check him out. Um, thank you too for your advice and perspective that we can all use in entrepreneurship education. It's really valuable. And uh, with that, we have concluded another episode of the Existential Edge podcast. Our guest was Rajiv Nathan, and we will see you next time. Take care, everybody.